This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR, where we tackle all things medical and psychological. On this glorious Father's Day, a paternalistic coup has taken place in the studio to help celebrate the day that celebrates dads. I, Lolly Doc, proud father of two amazing children, have assumed hosting power for the show in full knowledge that, as a father, I'm the boss of no one and nothing. But still, we have a brilliant show lined up for you. Dr Autonomy, our resident psychologist and medical ethicist, will be flexing her mighty ethical muscles and giving us a different slant on the marriage equality ads. Is it okay for doctors to advertise a particular view or opinion when the current medical evidence suggests a contrary position? Should a doctor's medical registration come into question when they do this? I personally can't wait to hear her thoughts on this. She'll be ably assisted, of course, by Miss Medic. In April 2017, The New Yorker reported on hundreds of Swedish refugee children who fell unconscious after being informed that their families were to be expelled from the country. Dr Malice will walk us through what has been referred to as the resignation syndrome. Is it a real psychological phenomenon? Does it represent a sadness so profound that it is the modern-day catatonia? Miss Medic, our resident GP extraordinaire, will update us on the flu apocalypse that has been ravaging Melbourne. And I'll be smashing some myths on man flu in a very masculine emergency physician manner. (laughs) I'm also determined to get in a dad joke or five. Kent will be pushing the buttons as always, but it's very probable that behind the scenes, a strong woman is pushing his. So fathers, grab your new pair of socks, your new deodorant and barbecue tool. Draw your family and loved ones in around the radio as we fill in the hour until... Doctor, doctor, give me the news, I got Good morning, team. Good morning, Dr. Autonomy. How are you? Hi, Lolly. I'm loving having you in the host seat. I think you should do it more often. Really? I've been nervous. I haven't slept. (laughs) I don't believe that for a (laughs) second. True. (laughs) How's your week been? Uh, Not too bad. I think we're on the last week of our two-year-old in a cast for his broken leg. So I can't wait to put him in a bath. Four and a half weeks. Wow. Stinky oh, leg. Stinky house. Oh, dear. And thank you to his father, my lovely husband, for um, sucking up no sleeping on Father's Day and giving it to me instead. Oh, so that's what fathers do. It's very yeah. sweet. We know that. Miss Medic, how are you? I'm well. Happy Socks and Jocks Day. Doctor. Thanks very much. <laughs> Did you, were you a. Uh, were you treated very well this morning? My kids, so yes, so they let me have a little sleep in till 7.30 <laughs> and I got pikelets in bed. Wow. Um, I did have to make my own coffee, but, you know, Fair these enough. are the sacrifices you have to make. They were wonderful. They're sitting out in the studio, they're outside. Hello, kids. Yes, just there on the Silence. computer, of course. Dr Malice, how are you? Oh, congratulations on a wonderful Father's Day intro. And just wondering, uh, is the saying is that there's always a great woman behind every great man, does it work the other way? Behind great women, there's always a great man? 
No. No. Another great woman. Yeah, or a, Another great or a crew woman. of oh, great women. <laughs> right. Don't okay. you think? Just That's how more health works. Mm-hmm. Just mm. wanted to clarify before we get into the equal sex uh, marriage debate. Equality. Equality mm-hmm. of whether we're going to have a balanced view or a biased view. And I think I get a drift to a bias, but that's all right. Well, I wasn't sure whether I should add in an LGBTI uh, kind of oh. slant to the intro as well. Yes. So it was, it was, it's very complicated today, sexuality. It is. It's mm. We've got an ethicist here who's going to fly the flag. Indeed. Miss Medic, do you want to tell us about the flu? What's happening? Mm. Why is everyone getting sick? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So I've talked a lot about the flu vaccine in the past and obviously I think it's a really good idea. And now the flu vaccine changes every year to cover, this year it's covering four strains of flu, but we actually know there's lots more different strains of flu than that out there. So a little snapshot of what I'm seeing. So this is may not be reflective of the entire of Melbourne or Victoria or Australia, but what I'm seeing at the moment tends to be this kind of pattern. That is, I'm seeing a lot of influenza A, even in immunised people, so people that have had their flu vaccine, so making us think that there is a flu A strain around that isn't covered in the vaccine. Um, I think there's two strains of flu A covered in the vaccine this year, but there's actually 16 strains of influenza A. Mm. So it can be that you knock out a couple and it allows other strains to sort of dominate. And then the other strain of flu that I'm seeing quite a bit is influenza B. And um, I'm seeing that really only in unvaccinated people. So people that haven't had the flu vaccine are, are coming in with flu B. And that's a particularly nasty Flu B. Can I ask you to explain what the difference between influenza A and influenza B is? Like I hear these terms mentioned all the time, but I don't actually know what they mean. So they, they're essentially just referring to the different strains. So there are a number of different sort of... Like, as over time, influenza strains change. So this sort of... It's a demarcation between the different strains. And they can cause sort of different types of illness. So influenza B typically can cause a more significant illness. So people can be sicker for you know more unwell and for a longer duration of time. And that's certainly what I'm seeing in my little pocket of general practice at the moment. Influ- influenza B in particular, the strain that's around at the moment, causing really high fevers for seven plus days. Um, often with vomiting as well in the children. Um, So, yeah, I think that's essentially what we're seeing at the moment. And there's also, to confuse things even more, a nasty strain of para-influenza around that's causing a flu-like illness. It's not not classically an influenza uh, virus. It's something called para-influenza. So it's it's similar to flu but not not covered in the flu vaccine. Mm. And one of the interesting things, I guess, about... The flu. There's nothing new about um, multiple strains of flu not being covered by vaccines, but I think one of the interesting things is that we've always thought that vaccination um, certainly decreases the severity of illness for strains that are not covered. Yeah. And we're wondering whether, in fact, that might be different in um, in the new strains of, of influenza. That's right. And we're also wondering, this is something that is also being pondered, is if you have the flu vaccine early in the season, are you actually waning by now in terms of your coverage 
does it last much longer than three months? And that's a big question. So some doctors are talking about giving you a second shot of the flu vaccine because we're expecting another spike of flu in September. So in the current month, we've had a big spike in, in August. So if you did get it really early in April, you might not be well covered by the flu vaccine now. We're just not sure. So there's lots of... Um, research that still needs to be done about how best to protect against flu but there's certainly it's certainly a bad year much much worse than last year dr mellis just a, a basic 101 biology question but wouldn't there be a possibility of doing a blood screen for antibodies of are you still covered by the things that you were injected for immunized in april shouldn't yeah. an antibody screen tell you that the problem with yeah. that, though, um, Malice, is that the each strain... So you develop uh, generic antibodies to the influenza family of, of viruses. So right. each you can't test for strain-specific oh. antibodies, only generic general strains of antibodies. So you may, in fact, have quite a good titer or a good level of antibodies in your bloodstream, but that may not protect you against certain strains because you can't test them. Right. You can't test. And... Look, at the moment, what I'm doing in general practice is taking lots of flu swabs, and that's more to give us more information. So it's actually when I'm taking the flu swabs, some sometimes I'm doing it because I think it's really important for the individual in front of me. So particularly for children, if you're thinking that this is probably flu, um, but you know that... Uh, it's going to be helpful to know that definitively if they're coming back to see you in six or seven days' time still with a high temperature, then I, I think swabbing is a really good idea. But I also think there are some cases where I'm like, I'm 100% sure this is flu, but I'm going to take the swab anyway because it helps because all of this is then notifiable to the Department of Health and then they can use that information about what flu is... Um, <coughs> is breaking out in what areas and can they kind of pick up a pattern? Because that information is really important in determining what we cover in the next year in the flu vaccine. And just to reiterate that very important bit of advice that you mentioned a couple of months ago on the show, which is the recommendation, if I've got this correct, is that all children over six months should have the flu vax as well, which you know I went off and vaccinated my two-year-old after you mentioned that on air. Yeah, that's right, because we know that a certain proportion of children do very badly with the flu each year. There's a number of, of hospitalisations and even deaths associated with the flu each year. So it's not... It's a, it's a fairly significant illness. It can really, really cause damage. So it is a good idea to vaccinate. It's still important to remember that more people died of the flu in World War Two than people who died in World War Two. Really? Yeah. There you go. Lots of people still die of the flu, unfortunately, worldwide. 13 past 10 on Radiotherapy 3 Triple R. One of the interesting things about the flu is the host reaction to flu and the difference between men <laughs> the y and women. Y-chromosome. The Y-chromosome. <laughs> I just wanted to have a little spiel about man flu because um, there, every flu season there's articles in the newspaper about is man flu real and something caught my attention uh, can I just ask, who even doubts that? Like, why is there a so, question? Look, it's, all the women have put their hands up in the <laughs> oh, studio oh, here. So it's so a gender bias again. So I, I oh, never, right. ever, ever, yeah. ever go to work and say that I'm sick, ever, right. because you get no sympathy whatsoever. Yeah. None whatsoever. You poor thing. I you know, right? It must be so hard. Right. And there it is. See, right whereas there. from my point of view, it's because you're so altruistic, you're considering the other people in the department and you don't want to spread the sickness. Exactly right. Yeah. That's I exactly mean, there's right. two views on this, it really. Is. So one thing we do know about men and women 
women, the difference is that the hormones that are predominant in men um, and women change the immune host reaction to, to illness and to viruses. So testosterone is actually a quite potent immune um, uh, dysregulator. So it actually suppresses the immune system, whereas estrogen um, increases the immune system. And that's the belief of why women are more prone, for example, to autoimmune conditions like um, multiple sclerosis, to lupus, rheumatoid, those sorts of things. And men, um, for example, with asthma, seem to have a decreased... um, lung lining uh, to asthma. And one of the interesting things that I saw in the research just recently, this was from the Walter Eliza Hall, there was a um, a new receptor, ILC2, which is a testo- testosterone-suppressed uh, receptor which decreases asthma response in, in flu, um, which means that you don't your asthma actually doesn't react to flu in men, but the virus itself is allowed to go rampant. So the symptoms of the virus are increased, but asthma itself is is not as prevalent. Whereas women who get the same virus are more likely to have flares of their asthma, but don't get the flu type symptoms. So the myalgias and, and the fevers. So I'm not saying with a man so flu is real. I'm a bit confused. So in men, yes. is it the actual symptoms that are worse or is it just the ability to complain? <laughs> so it's both right. autonomy. Right. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> It's both. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Although Father's Day is a special day for, for many families and for many dads, um, some Father's Day for fathers do do it tough, Dr Autonomy. Yeah, I think uh, this is something I'm always aware of working as a psychologist. You know, I've seen a number of clients this week for whom today was really looming as a tough day and um, something that they particularly dread every year. And and I think many uh, festivals and and holidays that that we celebrate can be really tough days for some people depending on their life circumstances. So, you know, I thought it would just be uh, poignant to to sort of mention why today might actually be a really difficult day for several people. And, you know, if you have some of those people in your life, it might be worth contacting them and and letting them know that you're thinking of them today. So, of course, you know, this is not an exhaustive list, but some of the things that I was thinking of were, firstly, men who desperately want to be fathers, but because of either biology or circumstance, they're they're not fathers this Father's Day, and that can be a really tough time. Uh, Also, people who've actually lost to their dad. Today can be a really sad day where that grief surfaces. Um, There's also people out there who just have a very fraught and difficult relationship with their father and of course Father's Day raises all of that and, and brings it all to a head. There's also fathers out there who have lost a child, which I can't even imagine what that must be like and, and what today must be like for them. And there's also fathers who who do have children but are simply just struggling with the weight of, of fatherhood and the, the demands and exhaustion and everything that, that comes with that. So I just wanted to do a bit of a shout out to all those people who might be having a difficult time today and to, of course, as we always do, mention Lifeline, which is a wonderful resource in tough times and the number for Lifeline is 131114. Dr. And just to add to that very well-deserved list, 
uh, the stepfathers who are in blended families or reconstituted families who do it uh, both with their own children perhaps or perhaps just with, not just with, but with their uh, stepchildren and standing in uh, initially and then becoming like dad and becoming for all intents and purposes dad. Mm-hmm. Mm. Happy Father's Day to all of you. Mm. Um, I wondered how we were going to get marriage equality into a show about health, Mm. but somehow we are going there and I'm glad we are because it's a very interesting topic and I think when we start scratching the surface here, we're going to find out a lot a bit bit more about. So Miss Maddie's going to start us off. Mm. You noticed some ads recently about marriage equality. Yeah, and I guess lots of our listeners would have also seen the ads that have been on the air this week and they are the no vote ads uh, against marriage equality and they've been um, funded by the Coalition for Marriage. So they featured three, I think the, most of them featured three mums, three mothers, who were expressing their concerns should the yes vote come through, what would be the perceived repercussions for their children. And one of the women featured was actually a Sydney-based GP um, who suggests in the ad that allowing same-sex marriage would mean that there'd be changes in the education system and that the curriculum would change in order to uh, be more inclusive about this and this would have, you know, dire repercussions in her uh, view for children. Um, She was then, once it was revealed that she was a GP, which I don't think was revealed during the ad. No, I don't think they say anything in the ad about who the women are. No, that's right. They're just all clearly mothers, I think. They're all clearly mothers. But she was identified as being a GP and then has been interviewed as a GP talking on this. So it's... And I guess that's where some of this real trickiness starts to arise because then she's being identified as a medical professional. And during that interview, she does reveal that she has concerns about the well-being of children that are raised in a same-sex family. So in the, when she's saying that, what she's doing is going very um, counter the opinion of probably the majority of medical professionals, but certainly our overriding medical bodies, such as the AMA. So the AMA came out in May of 2000... They didn't come out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, some of them may have came out. (laughs) Funny choice of words. Um, I think think that's called a Freudian slip, isn't it? I think so. (laughs) So the AMA released their position statement in May of this year, um, which essentially states four points and they give a lot of background to this and I'll just tell you what those four points are. So the AMA position is that, number one, it is the right of any adult and their consenting adult partner to have their relationship recognised under the Marriage Act 1961 regardless of gender. Point number two, current anti-discrimination laws should be maintained and enforced to ensure that businesses cannot withhold goods or services from clients due to their gender or sexual orientation. Number three, there are real and significant mental and uh, physiological health impacts arising from structural discrimination and the AMA supports moves to eliminate it in all of its forms. And point four, all Australian doctors should offer sensitive non-discriminatory care to all of their patients regardless of their sexual orientation or gender identity. And in their... So they're their main points... 
And in their sort of preamble and their discussion on this, they do refer to the fact that there is no evidence that children are at increased risk of harm should they be raised in a same-sex family. So, so I think that's really important because then we've got this doctor saying something very different to that. And I guess it raises lots of questions about what do we do when doctors are touting beliefs that sort of uh, are more about their personal beliefs, but it's being linked to the fact that they are a medical professional. And I think that's where the real harm here is, that she's clearly speaking about her own personal opinion, which you know, obviously all of us in the room um, strongly disagree with. But because she's a medical professional and because she's coming out as a general practitioner, her personal views hold more weight and people uh, take them on board in a different way. And I... I think a lot of the time would assume that they were evidence-based opinions, which they are just not. And that's where the harm lies. I think just before we get a blanket universal agreement on the panel, I'd just like to speak up for the question of what is evidence? Because this whole topic culturally has come up in the last 15, 20, maybe 25 years. So in terms of child rearing, I'm not saying there is evidence one way or the other. That's what I'm saying. The reason I say that is because now we know about generational effects. And as far as I know, no one's really looked at generational impact of these decisions. So at best, the evidence is a short-term, one-generation evidence. Now, I I think it's just to temper the argument before declaring that we're going with evidence-based medicine. It is highly limited evidence. And I take your point, Dr Malice, and I think there are large gaps in our evidence base around this topic. There is still much more research that needs to be done. However, there are some areas where we have very good evidence, uh, scientific evidence uh, about mental health impact. So let me tell you about some of the evidence that we do know around the mental health of young people who are same-sex attracted. So let me tell you about suicide in these populations. Um, LGBTI people have the highest rates of suicidality of any population in Australia. And the average age of first suicide attempt is 16, which often occurs before coming out. The average age is 16, so half of those people are younger than 16. Around mental health, we know that at least 36% of trans and 24% of gay, lesbian and bisexual Australians met the criteria for a major depressive episode in a single year. And the average in the general population is only 6.8%. So we're comparing 36% and 24% with 6.8%. And in terms of anxiety, more than twice as many homosexual and bisexual Australians experience anxiety disorders in comparison to heterosexual Australians. So these statistics that I'm quoting um, are from a 2013 briefing paper by the National LGBTI Health Alliance. And the other thing that's really, really important to note about these very concerning statistics from a mental health uh, perspective are that the cause of these mental health difficulties are not sexuality in and of itself, the cause of these mental health challenges are discrimination and exclusion. That's what causes these problems. And having people come out who hold a professional opinion, uh, a professional uh, role and using their personal opinion to strengthen views around discrimination and exclusion and to uh, voice their opinions that they actually think that's the way forward and that that's appropriate 
absolutely we know from the evidence is going to increase uh, mental health challenges for young people who are same-sex attracted. That's what we know for sure. I wanted to drill down, if I could, just on that particular point, because I think that's the ethical concern here, isn't it, for for the panel? I think we all accept that um, discrimination plays a significant role in ill health um, for the LGBTI community. One thing that I was interested to pick your brains on is, is what do you think should happen when a medical professional presents an opinion which um, is, if you like, counter to uh, the general medical consensus or evidence base. What should we do about that? I think one way to think about it is what would our reaction be around a different topic if a health professional was coming out and saying... I don't believe in vaccination, I believe in homeopathic uh, medicines, whatever it might be that doesn't have an evidence base, what would we expect a consequence to be? And we actually have a very recent case on this, a GP in Mitcham, um, just over the last week or so, has been asked to no longer practice medicine on the basis that he has been providing um, falsified document or documents suggesting uh, getting people out of the no jab, no pay because he's an anti-vaccinator as a GP, as a medical professional. So I think that that gives us a bit of an example. So what's he been doing? He's been s- signing documents saying people have had vaccinations uh, when they haven't. We, yeah, I guess we have the, to be a little bit careful it. here right. because it's, Sorry, it's, still being, sure. it's an investigation that's currently underway. Uh, underway. Yeah, so this the, is a GP who... Um, has already has conditions with the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency, or APRA, who's uh, our national medical regu- regulator. Uh, and he has been alleged to have been providing uh, the vaccination certificates for people who are actually not vac or children who are not vaccinated, who are children of people who don't subscribe to vaccination policies in yeah. Australia. So that's currently being investigated and it did make the headlines in all the national papers in the last couple of weeks. Um, Do you think that's a reasonable response for someone who provides an opinion on, for example, vote no in marriage equality? Should the national regulator get involved or should... Should they identify their opinion as being one of personal opinion rather than professional opinion? Well, I think that that's that's probably where I see it, is that we need to be very careful when we're talking about... If we're talking about something that sits sort of outside the general consensus amongst the the medical community, then we should be making it really clear that this is a personal opinion and not one that is based on our, you know, professional standing. And I think that hasn't been done in this situation. Um, What should be done then? Uh, Look, I think the regulator should have a look. I think that there's there's definitely... um, there's something to have a look at and then dis- and then bring the discussion to the fore. What I worry about thinking through the potential consequences is if this woman has such a strong personal opinion that she's willing to go on national television and voice that opinion, and I guess one of the things that's being said about the No campaign ads is that they're really vague, you know, purposely so Uh, and so it's very difficult to even get a sense of you know what programs they're talking about are going to be happening in schools it's so there's there's very uh, it's very vague about even what evidence she's referring to but if this woman is 
feeling so strongly that she's willing to go on national television. What I worry about is what happens when a young person walks into her clinic as a GP and says that they're same-sex attracted or or talks about some aspect of of that. Uh, What sort of reaction are they going to get from her? And if if this could be potentially the first time that they've ever spoken up about it with someone and they get an inkling of um, disdain or judgment uh, or discrimination, uh, then that's horrendous for that young person. And so that's what I worry about and I think that's where we really need to be careful about how are these personal opinions coming through in people's ethical and medical practice. Can I, pro- I just want to present a counterpoint. I actually agree with you, but I just want to present a little counterpoint and use the example of um, pregnancy terminations. So there's clearly um, uh, GPs, doctors, obstetricians, specialists who have the personal view that termination should not be performed, whether it be a religious or a personal health belief. And they identify themselves as as not being able to provide that service and refer on to another doctor. Would you be comfortable if this particular GP said, I actually am not comfortable looking after um, people who are married of same sex and I'm going to refer you on to another GP? Would that be okay for you? I would be more comfortable with that if it was known, you know, as you walk into the practice that this is not somewhere that you're going to get support and and empathy and care and evidence-based practice uh, and that you are referred on to someone who will and and I would be more comfortable with that. Miss Medic. Yeah, this is a really tricky one. And yes, that's absolutely what happens now around terminations and uh, medical professionals are you know, are given that as an option so that they don't need to, but they need to provide a, um, appropriate referral to someone who will provide the service. Uh, what what makes this then more complicated is that this might be all well and good in, say, a metropolitan setting, but what about in a rural setting if well, you're the GP? GP there's yep. one GP and they... And then what are we allowing? And we know that in the rural community, this is even a greater risk for young people who might be same-sex attracted. So I I do... Look, I don't know what the answer is, but I feel... I feel it's really unfortunate that we're still in the... I just think it's unfortunate that we still can't move on from this, that, that people are people and they deserve to be treated with respect and that their health needs to be looked after regardless of their sexual orientation. And I think that any good doctor should be able to separate their personal opinions in order to do the right thing by the patient that's sitting in front of them. I am... I'm still thinking about that ethical... Anyway, we could talk about this forever, but I just wanted to move on. Um, Dr Malice is going to talk to us about the resignation uh, syndrome, and it's a very interesting topic. I was reading the New Yorker article that you passed on to us, Dr Malice, uh, which talks about... uh, It was written in April this year, I think. It was published, and it talks about Swedish refugee children, and there were hundreds of them, from what I understand, who fell unconscious after being informed that their families were to be expelled from the country. And um, I guess this leads us on to a whole host of topics. Um, in particular, you're going to describe the resignation syndrome and what, what, what that means. What is it all about? Well, I, I was going to, but in light of what we've just talked about, I think the ethical questions that have been raised about evidence really is at the heart of this syndrome. And the, as you say, Lolly Doc, the article that was passed on to me along with a scholarly paper called Resignation Syndrome 
question mark, catatonia or culture bound in a, a very reputable uh, journal at the frontiers of neuroscience uh, raises some profound questions about medical ethics and how do we know what we know as so-called evidence. Uh, I just point to first the, the case that was written up in the New Yorker concerned a young boy called Giorgio, a Russian emigre, actually a refugee, who came with his mum and dad and a younger sibling to Sweden in 2007 when he was five years old. So now he's 15 at 2017. And the article covers the acute episode where he was ha- had to be fed with a tube down his nose. It's called a nasogastric tube because he actually went into this unknown state, uh, whether it was catatonia, fugue, dissociation. It's, it remains an open question. And for our listeners, Dr. Malz, what are those states? How, how, what do they mean? What, what is catatonia? Now, these are states that are very often associated with very severe mental illnesses or severe trauma, where the person's conscious state is lost. So basically, they are no longer communicative. That's the basis. Once you've got a non-communicative communicative person, then you make what's called differential diagnoses. You try to sort out, did they have a brain lesion, say a pressure on the brainstem or a stroke that left them in locked-in syndrome, as it's called, or various other losses of consciousness from brain injury, or the so-called functional Illnesses, the most common one being a schizophrenic catatonia, where people actually go quite rigid and you can't do anything unless they get ECT treatment. Now, in between, there's a range of disorders called traumas, which have got altered states of consciousness that are going from mild to severe. At the mild end of mild partial dissociations, at the other end of the extreme is severe dissociation and indeed what are called fugue states, almost uh, sleep-like. Now, what is the at the heart of this problem is that this condition, this resignation syndrome, which affects hundreds of children in the last 15 years in Sweden, is only located to Sweden, which already is an extraordinary phenomenon in mental health. Why should it not be in the host country, say in the Russian provinces where these refugees came from, or other European countries, or indeed Australia, which have taken in the refugee children? Now, the turning point, at least in the uh, New Yorker article, comes, uh, as I'll quote, in an open letter to the Swedish Minister of Migration, 42 psychiatrists asserted that the new restrictions on asylum seekers and the time it took the Migration Board to process their application, children could be in limbo for years because of this processing, were causing the disease. Now, 42 psychiatrists uh, really is quite a, a, a body of expert opinion. So who would dare go against mainstream opinion saying this is a disease firstly, let alone that it's caused by migration policy and determinations of deportation or not? Ethical question one. Ethical question two, the actual paper that is in a reputable referee journal, a very uh, serious um, publication called The Frontiers of Behavioural Neuroscience, Resignation Syndrome, refereed paper with references. But if I look at the references and if I was uh, a referee for this journal, I would not pass this paper 
Why not? It makes absolutely no references to some of the most recent developments in trauma-informed care. How can you actually go by a journal which is published in the last couple of years but makes no up-to-date references in relational trauma, dissociative attunement, intergenerational trauma and complex PTSD, which is part of this young boy's condition? Finally, the ethical question is, you insert a nasogastric tube because you have to to save the life, but there's no evidence this child got any sort of intervention of child psychiatric treatment that are known treatments for stress. So I really question the ethics of how do we propagate knowledge from scientific journals where the very foundation of that journal article is open to debate and let alone claiming, as these authors have achieved, classifying a new disorder. This new disorder is actually now classified as resignation syndrome and it is up to presumably Swedish psychiatrists to diagnose it lest they become duty of care is lost if they don't. My question is I, as a child psychiatrist in Melbourne in 2017, if I were confronted with a family like this, would I be forced to make this diagnosis or am I entitled to follow my practice which is endorsed by the Australasian College of Psychiatry, Australian New Zealand College of Psychiatrists and international bodies on recognising trauma and trauma-informed care. This is quite an ethical dilemma. Now, it harks back to the question that we raised before of what evidence do we claim is evidence? Now, uh, Dr. Autonomy, I'd love to hear your views because you mentioned some of the evidence on uh, suicide rates, uh, on major depression, on anxiety. But where is the data on trauma in such populations, which is known to be a precursor of all those conditions, suicide rate, depression and anxiety? If we overlook trauma in the history of these individuals, are we first causing harm? by not properly diagnosing. So I'd love to hear the evidence on trauma, first of all. Dr. Mellis, would you... um, So, you know, as I was saying before with that evidence, the reason that the mental health is so bad is because of discrimination and exclusion. And I'm wondering if you would class discrimination and exclusion as traumatic events. Not only would I class it as such... But I would go a step further and ask, who is doing the discrimination and exclusion? And I would say it's us, the mental health profession. We are excluding trauma from our training, from our thinking, from our policy. And yes, we are providing arguably discriminatory mental health services by not including trauma-informed care. So I don't in any way blame any practitioner who's been trained in the last 20 years, but I have now an ethical obligation to raise this question of what is known in the medical profession as iatrogenic disease. Ms. Medic? Can you just help me understand, Dr. Mellis, what would the difference be if trauma is a precursor to these outcomes of depression, anxiety, increased suicidality? What's the change in the management if it's happened as a precursor versus you're seeing it more in its kind of outcome state? Thank you very much, Ms. Medic. That is at the heart of the problem. 
that most of these conditions are what are called comorbid. They coexist. If we only diagnose depression, suicidality and anxiety, not thinking of the comorbidity with trauma, which has got a totally different approach in treatment, then we're going to find really poor response rates for the three that are comorbid. Mm. Now, you ask, what are the treatments? Mm. Well-known and well-accepted treatments, EMDR, for example. Uh, it, it has had a very controversial beginning 20 years ago, but it is eye, rapid eye movement desensitisation process now universally accepted as one of the beginning forms of treatment. But before you get into the technical parts of treatment, it's the attitude with which the clinician approaches the patient. That is where there's a history in this resignation syndrome of migration, of duress, of fleeing a country. That at the age of five is going to be traumatic, not only for the child, but for the mother and the father and the other sibling. And so it's an attitude of how does one even take a history? Does one straight away go into, oh, you've got depression, suicidal anxiety, and you had a migration, well, that's, you know, that was 10 years ago, so that doesn't matter. That's what child psychiatry and good medical practice, and you, you advocated for good medical practice, it's to understand our patients' lives. And just because it happened 10 years ago, 20, we've got Anzac uh, veterans, 90 years later, still having flashbacks, is that good medicine to overlook trauma because it happened 90 years ago? No, it's not good medicine. Is it discriminatory? Yes, it is. No one's at fault. It's just the knowledge was not there. I can't use that excuse in our current culture of trauma-informed care. Can I just ask the question, Dr Mellis, how then do you engage someone who's in a near catatonic state with psychological treatments? Because... Yes. Often they are, from my understanding, fairly shut down from yes. a psychological point of view yes. and the, the initial treatment is obviously to sustain their life, yes. hence the nasogastric tubes and those sorts of things. What, what do you do in that instance in order to start their actual treatment of trauma? Absolutely. In this instant, as you quite rightly say, saving life is the priority. We talked about uh, triage in the past. When there's a life-threatening condition, you treat it. However, there are other children who are actually well downstream, who are showing much milder conditions, which are the precursor to this well-known resignation syndrome. But if they're allowed to go unnoticed, then what is the ethics of that medical community as systemically really discriminating and overlooking medical facts? So I have no problems. When there's a life-threatening situation, you must do what they're doing. However, I do question labelling such children and awaiting for others to join the nasogastric tube, as in fact one of the uh, carers, Professor uh, Holtz, Holtz Kranz, who is really uh, at the centre of this debate. She's an emeritus professor of ENT, and she, it's quoted, seems unaware of her power as she encourages families to, quote, get their tubes, meaning that already when their children are not quite well, she encourages a mother and father to get the tubes ready 
And there is a questionable ethics of why not intervene with proper trauma-informed care rather than advising get the tube. This reminds me a little bit of our own local experience in Australia and our response to refugees and deportation and Nauru and the American swap mm. solution and yes. all those sorts of things. I, I wonder, are we... Uh, unethically uh, joining in providing extra trauma to um, true refugees. Now, these are uh, tremendously different cultural questions and political questions and uh, moral and ethical questions. However, as a profession, if our mandate for 2,000 years has been to first do no harm, then our first priority is to get our own house sorted out and that is where there are conditions that we know are traumatic and trauma is a precursor to suicide, depression, anxiety and identity disorders and so on, our obligation is to follow the evidence of precursors put people at risk. So let's sort out Ours. our, our yes. refugee solution. Let's sort out our marriage no, marriage yes, mm-hmm. equality solutions so that we can reduce trauma for future generations. Absolutely. You're advocating. Yes. Okay. Prevention, and I was taught an ounce of prevention is worth a tonne of cure. Wow. Who taught you that? Uh, that was before they had <laughs> your, your computers. Dad? No, no, this oh. was, we had hieroglyphics and we wrote on stone <laughs> tablets. I remember the 1800s. Yeah. How terrific. <laughs> um, how do you make an octopus laugh? Tickle all its legs. <laughs> Tentacles. Oh, well. <laughs> That's my dad joke. I can't believe we only had one dad joke oh, in the whole hour. Really? Have you seen the movie Constipation? <laughs> it's not out yet. <laughs> there we go. You've been listening to... Oh, I'm scared of German sausages. They're the worst. <laughs> worst? Worst. Yeah, thank yeah. you very much. You've been listening to Radiotherapy. Uh, thank you so very, very much, Dr. Autonomy. Um, I've really enjoyed taking control, the power. It's gone to my head. She's going to take it back. Uh, no, she's going to take it back immediately. Thank you, Miss Medic. Very, thank very you. interesting topic. Thank you, Dr. Malice. As always, Kent, thank you for pushing everyone's buttons, including the studio's buttons. You've been listening to Radiotherapy 3RRR. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.